House of the Supreme Court. Justice Owen Roberts told his colleagues that Biddle had suggested to him that Roosevelt would execute the Germans no matter what the court did. Roberts added, I believe FDR intends to have all eight men shot if we do not acknowledge his authority. Two of the justices had close relationships with the Roosevelt administration that raised questions about their sitting in the Quirin case. James F. Burns had been working as a virtual member of the government for months, and before long he left the court to be the president's top war administrator. Felix Frankfurter's ethical position was far more shocking. In a conversation with the Secretary of War, Henry L. Stimson, he had actually recommended the use of a military commission to try the Nazis. The Supreme Court's handling of the case was a blot on the court's history, apart from what went on behind the scenes. The court heard argument on the issue of presidential power to have the Germans tried by military commission without knowing how the commission had actually performed and before its verdict. The court decided the case in a day. It upheld the president's power in a unanimous order, without an opinion explaining its reasoning. The opinion by Chief Justice Harlan F. Stone was issued months later. Justice Hugo Black's law clerk at the time, John P. Frank, said later, if the judges are to run a court of law and not a butcher shop, the reasons for killing a man should be expressed before he is dead. The process by which the Supreme Court reached judgment in ex parte Quirin was illegitimate, Pierce O'Donnell concludes. It was tainted, he writes, by the justices' conflicts of interest, bias, and President Roosevelt's ex parte threats to execute the German saboteurs if the Supreme Court did not uphold his actions. For those reasons, O'Donnell urges, the Quirin decision should not be treated as a valid precedent in today's tests of presidential power. But even if one accepts the Quirin decision on its face, it is unconvincing for the Bush administration to rely on it in support of repressive tactics now. The Bush lawyers note that two of the Quirin defendants were American citizens, but were held subject to trial by military commission. That, they say, justifies Bush's detention of Americans without trial or counsel. But the situations are entirely different. There was no doubt about the facts in 1942, that the eight were sent by Hitler to sabotage American installations, that they shed their military uniforms and wore civilian clothes, and so on. But in the case of Americans detained by President Bush as enemy combatants, terrorists, Bush claimed the power to determine the facts himself. His lawyers said the courts should have virtually no power to examine his determinations. Moreover, the Bush administration claimed the power to hold its prisoners in total isolation, forbidding them in particular to speak with a lawyer, and violating the Geneva Convention on Prisoners of War, POWs. The German saboteurs were given a prompt trial and afforded lawyers for their defense, and superb lawyers they were, military officers who saw it as their duty to represent their clients zealously, even if that meant challenging the orders of their commander-in-chief. The story of the principal defense lawyer in the case, Colonel Kenneth C. Royal, is the main subject of this book, and a remarkable tale. In practical terms, Royal had an unwinnable case, but he persevered, to his honor, and that of American law. Later he became Secretary of the Army. As a result of this book, he will be remembered for performing a lawyer's duty under overwhelmingly adverse circumstances. It is an uplifting theme, and a fitting reminder of how much the safety of our country depends on the morality, commitment to the rule of law, and good faith of lawyers. Tragically, President Bush has not had the wise counsel of a Kenneth C. Royal in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. 
In a series of extraordinary legal analyses by Bush administration lawyers between late 2001 and 2003, the president was advised that he had the constitutional authority to override international treaties and congressional laws prohibiting torture of enemy soldiers and requiring hearings to determine if they are entitled to POW status. These conclusions are startling and wrong. Federal law and the International Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, Degrading Treatment, or Punishment, clearly prohibited the degrading treatment of al-Qaeda and Iraqi prisoners at the U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and the Abu Ghraib prison in Baghdad. Article 5 of the Third Geneva Convention of 1949 requires a prompt hearing before a competent tribunal for captured enemy forces to determine if they are innocent civilians who must be released, lawful combatants who must be held as prisoners of war until the end of hostilities, or persons, such as saboteurs or terrorists, who are subject to war crimes prosecutions. These basic requirements of international humanitarian law, officially adopted by the United States, are intended to set a minimal code of conduct for treating captives in time of war. Article 5 status hearings have proven to be highly effective in sorting out how captives should be classified. In the 1991 Gulf War, the United States held 1,196 such hearings before military tribunals, and almost 75% of these prisoners were freed after being found to be innocent civilians. Contrary to Pentagon claims, not all of the Guantanamo Bay detainees were picked up on the Afghan battlefield. Some were arrested in countries as far away as Zambia and shipped to Guantanamo Bay by American authorities, while others were handed over to U.S. forces for the bounty. Informed intelligence officers admit that many of those held in Cuba were civilian Afghans rounded up by mistake during the war. Similarly, the International Committee of the Red Cross estimates that between 75 and 90 percent of Iraqi civilians apprehended by coalition forces were arrested by mistake, often with the use of brutal tactics. On the advice of his lawyers, President Bush determined that the Geneva Conventions did not cover prisoners held at Guantanamo Bay because they were unlawful combatants, a term not found in the Geneva Conventions. This decision was strongly opposed by Secretary of State Colin Powell, who correctly argued that the Third Geneva Convention should cover the Afghan conflict. The prisoners could still be found to be unlawful combatants, Powell noted, but only after individual hearings for those requesting them. The Secretary of State, a former top military officer himself, was profoundly alarmed at the administration's radical reversal of over a century of U.S. policy and practice that would undermine the protections of the law for our troops. The widespread condemnation of the United States by the world legal community in the wake of our repudiation of international humanitarian law, predicted by Powell, was dismissed by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld in 2002 as isolated pockets of international hyperventilation. Similarly, Bush administration lawyers invoking a sweeping notion of impervious presidential power counseled the president that extremely harsh interrogations of suspected terrorists were justified because they might elicit information that could prevent future attacks by foreign enemies. One Justice Department memorandum in August 2002 declared, any effort to apply the criminal law against torture in a manner that interferes with the President's direction of such core matters as the detention and interrogation of enemy combatants thus would be unconstitutional. 
The president's lawyers paved the way for the shocking abuses that have occurred in the military's treatment of prisoners in the war on terror. International and U.S. legal obligations and the rule of law were put aside. Like it or not, the Taliban, certainly a cruel and violent movement, controlled virtually all of Afghanistan, thereby entitling its captured soldiers to POW status, or, at a minimum, to status hearings under the Third Geneva Convention. Cruel and humiliating interrogation techniques have heightened resentment of America in the Arab world and mocked our commitment to democratic values. Official U.S. government reports, as well as investigations by the International Committee of the Red Cross, Human Rights Watch, and others, have found that people in American military custody have been murdered, tortured, and subjected to inhuman and degrading treatment while being interrogated. The Army has admitted that at least 39 prisoners in Iraq and Afghanistan died, some while being interrogated. Among other things, male detainees at Abu Ghraib were paraded naked, ordered to do jumping exercises, and sing the Star-Spangled Banner in the nude, made to stand on boxes with their arms outstretched, forced to maintain physically painful positions for hours, compelled to masturbate in front of women, and subjected to unmuzzled military dogs to make them involuntarily urinate out of fear of the menacing dogs. Prisoners released from Guantanamo Bay have alleged that they were systematically abused by American military personnel in similar ways, including being beaten, deprived of sleep, shackled in painful positions, threatened with death to coerce confessions, and continually subjected to humiliation, all violations of the Geneva Conventions if true. The issues raised by the Bush administration's unprecedented legal assertions in its war on terror are numerous and troubling. They reduce to one fundamental proposition. Presidential power is unconstrained.